0: Open your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, page 1046, if you're using a Bible provided. In thinking back over last week's sermon, and uh, most preachers do that, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of preaching, and then uh, Sunday afternoon or Sunday night or Monday, things are bugging you about either what you said or what you didn't say, and, and uh, it just seemed like I missed a great opportunity, and before we move into the next section of Scripture, I want to go back because I believed in what I said was absolutely true, but I only gave what I would consider half a truth. And so, in verses 1 through 4 of Matthew 18, we learn that God's kingdom is upside down from the world's kingdom. Not that we haven't seen that all throughout Matthew, but another op- opportunity to see that, where Jesus teaches that to be the greatest, you must be the least, to be the first, You must be the last. The only way to have the highest status in the kingdom is by willingly taking the lowest status. To be the greatest in God's kingdom, you must follow Christ's example and humble yourself, considering others more significant and their interests as more important. Philippians chapter 2. So comparative passage to that is Philippians 2. In humility, we will die to ourselves and serve others. And this mindset will cause us to say to others, How can I help you? Yet, even as Christians, we often make decisions from the vantage point of, What's in it for me? In our self seeking, self exalting pride, we simply want to know and make decisions based on the premise of, What's in it for me? So, what I said is true. We cannot be making decisions as Christians. About saying every time, well, it's just about me. It's my interest. It's my desires. What, what, what can this do for me? That that's not the right mindset. But in giving you that truth, I only gave you half of the truth. I never addressed why. Well, you say, well, it's in the Bible. Okay, yes, it's in the Bible. But why do we as Christians need to live the way of Christ considering ourselves the least, taking the lowest status, humbling ourselves in such a way. Why should we do that and why would we ever change? Well, we reject God's kingdom ways. So we say, well, that's in the Bible. It's what God's word says. And we say, yeah, I understand that's what the Bible says, but no, thank you. We reject God's kingdom ways because we, we reject God's kingdom truth. We would reject what I said last week because we believe that living, self-seeking, self-exalting lives of pride will make us happier, will give us the greatest joy, will fill our lives with the most pleasure. We think that to be the least, to be the last, to be the servant will make us the most miserable. So we see serving others as joy-stealing, pleasure-robbing misery. Sound familiar? Pastor says, to be the greatest, you need to be the least. You need to put others first. You need to consider others more important. And you say, yes, I see that's what the Bible says, but I don't want any part of that because that will lead to my misery. That is no fun. That's, I'm just going to be a doormat. I'm just, People are going to walk all over me. There's no pleasure in serving. There's pleasure in being served. There's no pleasure in joy in being the least. There's pleasure in being the greatest. So, Pastor, what you're calling me to is something I reject because of underlying presuppositions. And, and I believe this is very important for us to understand. We can't help but viewing life from the perspective of what's in it for me. I wish I could just make us say that will never happen. I'll never consider decisions upon what's, what's in it for me. But I believe that this is a part of the way God created us because God created us to pursue happiness, joy, and pleasure. And when you become a Christian, that doesn't go away, that doesn't change. What's upside down in Christ's kingdom is not that Christians enjoy misery, joylessness, and unhappiness. That's what the world teaches. The world says to become a Christian, you have to give up all pursuit of happiness, all pursuit of joy, all pursuit of pleasure, and you're just going to live a miserable life of serving others like a doormat. Amen? Sign up here on the dotted line. That's not true. The reason Christ's ways and Christ's kingdom are upside down is because the world is actually upside down. But yet we don't see it. And so, this upside kingdom truth is that the path to the greatest happiness, joy, and pleasure is by being a servant. What's in it for you by considering others more significant and humbly seeking their interest before your own? What's in it for you? Happiness, joy, and pleasure like you've never known before. What's in it for you when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? He will exalt you to heights you could never imagine. You will be the greatest in the kingdom. But there's a specific pathway to that. And by just telling you to quit pursuing joy and happiness and pleasure and just pursue misery is giving you the wrong motivation. The Bible doesn't motivate like that. I left that part unsaid. And so Hebrews twelve two is a very important verse for this where it talks about Jesus in his humility. Philippians 2, he died on the cross. Hebrews twelve two says, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Philippians 2 said he was obedient all the way to death on the cross in his humility. But in his humility, what did he pursue? He pursued the glory of the Father in obedience to the will of the Father because of the joy that was set before him. Where will you find the greatest joy? In God's kingdom, doing things God's way, all for His glory. So, do you want to be happy today? Do you want to live a life full of joy and pleasure? Then there's a specific pathway to that. We don't humble ourselves and die to ourselves for the misery, <laughs> but for the joy. We must pursue the greatest glory by seeking the glory of God. It must be God glorifying pleasure. It must be neighbor loving joy. You will never get what you want by pursuing it according to the ways of the world. This worldly kingdom is the broken and upside down kingdom. The more you proudly pursue self-seeking self-exaltation, the more miserable you will be. So it's only by adopting the thinking of the kingdom of heaven, the ways of the kingdom of heaven, that you will truly find the happiness, joy, pleasure, and even the glory that you desire. We only reject God's ways because we don't believe that God's ways are best. We don't believe that God is truly good and all his ways are good. We don't believe his ways are best because they really will take us where we want to go. We don't believe that and so we reject his ways so if I left you with the idea that well I need to grin and bear it and become the most miserable person on earth by serving others I want to tell you that that's not the result and if you seek to pursue pleasure and joy and happiness through self-seeking self-exalting pride and self-centeredness all those things you will be the most miserable And, and you should know that as a Christian you should remember what it was like before Christ and the longer you live that way the more miserable you will get You will keep pursuing it because you are pursuing it. Actually, the world pursues it upside down. The kingdom of God seems upside down because this is the world we live in. But this is the way it's supposed to be, and this is the way joy is found. Now, that's a 10-minute sermonette, all for free. (laughs) You say, I didn't want 10 minutes for free. I'm good with what you usually do. Matthew 18. We're just going to jump into the passage. Before we dive into what it means, we're going to read it. And before we read it, we're going to pray. So let's pray together. Father, we need your help. This poor preacher needs your help to say even the things he wasn't planning to say, the things that need to be said. Keep him from saying things that don't need to be said that he shouldn't say. May we hear from you this morning through your spirit, through your word, for your glory. We cannot do it on our own. We are desperately, utterly dependent upon you working through your spirit in this moment. We ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 18. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. Please follow along in your Bible. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Revelation, may we listen to it. The theme this this morning is this King Jesus warns us about stumbling blocks. King Jesus warns us about stumbling blocks. This whole passage is a dire passage of warning. And so I want you to hear it with all of the fervor of the deepest, darkest, most important warnings of life. But what is a stumbling block? A stumbling block is any obstacle that gets in the way of entering the kingdom of heaven. That's how I believe Christ is using these terms today. It's any obstacle that gets in the way of entering the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus Christ warns about being a stumbling block or having a stumbling block. And so this is a warning passage, a warning for stumbling blocks. So in this passage, starting in verse 5, Jesus continues using the metaphor of children, but changes his term from children in verses 1 through 4 to little ones. But it's the same idea. And so this discipleship teaching contains some of the most severe teaching on spiritual punishment in the Gospels. It's discipleship teaching, yet it's such a dire warning that it gives you some of the most severe teaching on spiritual punishment. These verses take hell very seriously. So if you felt that, that's good. I tried to read it that way. That's the warning that is in this passage. So this is a passage on warning. Let's see as we dig in exactly what it says to us this morning. First thing, how we treat Christ's disciples is how we treat Christ himself. How we treat Christ's disciples is how we treat Christ himself. So he says, whoever receives one such child, that's the child from verses 1 through 4. And the child in verses 1 through 4, we learned last week, are disciples, Christians, followers of Christ, He continues that theme and he changes it to one such child. In verse 6, he continues with the idea of little ones. That's the one such child and the children from before. And so this idea here is that this child in verse 5 is one who has had childlike faith. Utterly dependent on Christ. And one who has that kind of faith is a true disciple. Now what does it mean to receive a true disciple in the name of Christ? Well, he's going to talk more about this in verse 10. So come back next week and and Marv will pick up the passage and and follow on with this idea of treating Christ's disciples as how we treat Christ himself. But here he mentions it in in the idea of receiving. To receive is to deliberately and readily take something or someone to oneself. To deliberately and readily take someone or something to oneself. Here it's a someone, this, this such child. This means, what does that mean? This means to receive into the fellowship, to receive into a close relationship, to receive into the family. I'm a brother in Christ, you're a brother and sister in Christ, come on in, we are now family. Now, that's family in the best sense, family in the sense of close relationships. We live together, we spend time together, we're family. Not family in the worst sense. I have to go be with my family on Easter for dinner, and I don't want to be there. That's, that's not the idea I want to leave you with. So if you are a son of God, as was mentioned in 17, Matthew 17, 24 and following, then you are a child of God, Matthew 18, 1 through 4. And if you are a child of God and a son of God, then you are the brother of Christ, so if you have received Christ, then you will do what with his disciples? I've received Christ, therefore I will receive all of the brothers in Christ. I will receive his family members because we're all family. That's the idea here. If you receive one such child in my name, you receive me. So as you respond to Christ, you respond to his disciples. You receive them in Jesus' name. Notice carefully there's a continuance here. And it's this status, this status that they are in Christ, they are in Christ's name, that triggers the welcome. If you're truly a Christian, if you bear the name of Christ, I welcome you on that basis because I'm a Christian. I bear the name of Christ, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. So here's something that wasn't in your notes. You can write it and add it to it if you want. Christians welcome other Christians into a close relationship. This is the outworking of treating disciples as we treat Christ. Do we want a close relationship with Christ? Have we received Christ? Then we receive Christians. That's the point. Now, what else is included in the term of receiving? Well, it includes to welcome, to receive kindly, to bear with patiently. Those are all the adjectives. And so it has the idea of not just welcoming to the family and then putting them out in the shed to live. You know, you're a part of the family, but we're going to put you on the outskirts because I don't really want to live too close to you. Now, some of you are having the great joy or you've had the great joy in times of life of having to live with family. I should say that differently. I said that wrong, didn't I? Some of you have had the great privilege and joy of getting to live with family as adults. You've left home. You've come back home. You've had the great privilege of living with family. Some of you here today are parents now living with children. Children. Adult parents, living with adult children, adult children. Living, so I don't know what side of the equation you might be on. That's a great privilege, isn't it? You say, well, yes, it's a great privilege. But, you know, when you left 15 years ago, it was really nice. And now you're back. And now I'm not sure I want to live this close to you. So can we build an addition that has no door between us and you? Or can we build another house on the property where we can just get a little bit of separation? This is not that kind of family situation. This is like, hey, move in and let's be in close relationship. Let's eat dinner together every night. Not, I'll see you next week for a few minutes. Pop in by, say hello. You know, this is not that idea. So true disciples of Jesus, Christians, enjoy being around other Christians. They like that. And this is one reason why Christians really enjoy attending church. The reason they enjoy attending church is they get to hang out with those people. That's what you're doing this morning. You are here to worship and fellowship with those people. Now, sometimes Christians don't talk about those people in a positive sense. How many times have you run into a professing Christian who says, I don't go to church? You say, why don't you go to church? Well, because all of those people go there. You know, Christians. And then they tell you all their woes they've had with those people. But I want to put it in the positive. You got to come today and hang out with these people. What a privilege. You get to fellowship with these people. Look around at these people. Is there any place else you'd rather be than with these people? Don't answer that out loud, all right? Just just might be dangerous. So I want to say this. I really enjoy gathering with you. I really do. You're my kind of people. Not just because I'm your pastor and I have to be paid to enjoy you and paid to be... I don't get paid to enjoy you. I have to pay to be around you, paid to know you. I enjoy you because you're my kind of people. You know, I liked Christians before I became a pastor. None of you are pastors, at least not currently that I'm aware of. So you have to like them even though you're not a pastor. One of the things that happened as I was a child growing up is... I professed faith in Christ at a young age, uh, around the age of six, and for the next six years, I would struggle at different times with assurance of salvation. Maybe some of you have had that experience, where you profess faith, and then with sin or with different challenges in your life, you would question, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Have I really been born again? And you might wrestle with that. I wrestled with that for about six years, and finally, I confessed that to my mom, because most of my wrestling, I just kept to myself. I said, "I just really struggle. I'm really struggling with assurance of salvation." And she had a lot of information to give me, but one that fits here is this: My mom asked me, by going through the letter of First John, she asked me some questions about what are the marks of a Christian. One of the things she asked me is, "Do you love Christians? Do you love Christians? Do you like being around Christians? Do you like going to church? The reason she asked that is because in 1 John chapter 3, it says this. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. One another in the Bible, in the New Testament, is a very specific term for Christians, disciples. This isn't loving everybody. It's, do you love believers? And notice, he says, do not be surprised, brothers. Notice the relationship, the family relationship, that the world, not the brothers, the world hates you. So if you hate brothers in Christ... What are you? Are you in Christ or in the world? Are you of Christ or of the world? The world hates brothers, but I'm a brother and I therefore love brothers. We should love one another. We know that we have passed out. How do we know that we have passed out of death into life, spiritually speaking, from spiritual death into spiritual life? Because we love the brothers. And if you don't love the brothers, where are you abiding right now? You're abiding in death. So, My mom asked me, do you love Christians? Do you love being around Christians? Do you love the brothers? And even as a 12-year-old, you know what I said? I do. I actually, even as a 12-year-old, like going to church. I like listening to my dad preach most of the time, sometimes. I enjoy the fellowship. I enjoy my Christian friends. I enjoy the Christian adults. I love being at church, with the church, together with them. So the question I have just right now for teens, do you, do you love the church? Do you love being in the church with the church? I loved it because I fit. I fit with the church. I went to public school my whole younger years, graduated from public school. I spent 13 years in the exact same school. 15 people in my graduating class, I started in the kindergarten class with, and we went all the way through it together. i tell you what, I didn't fit at public school. I didn't fit in, I was odd, I was weird. Now, does that not mean I didn't try to fit in? (laughs) Yeah, I did, I I wanted to, to have friends, I wanted to fit in, I didn't want to be odd, but I never fit, you know where I fit? I fit at church, I fit with God's people. I fit with the weird kids in youth group and they were weird, just like me. We were just, we were those people, we were the strange kids, that's where I fit. And so teens, do you fit here? Are these people your kind of people? Kids, do you fit here? Are Christians your kind of people? If this body of believers, if Christians aren't your kind of people, if this is where you feel at odds, then what does that say about whether you're a Christian or not? It's a hard check, but it's a good check. Notice, because Christians receive Christians in the name of Christ. And this shows up in your home. It shows up with hospitality. Do you welcome Christians into your home? Do you enjoy hanging out with Christians? On a Friday night, would you rather hang with people from the church or people from work? Neighbors, other family members who aren't Christians. Who do you like spending time with? There are people you have to spend time with. And there are people you like to spend time with. It says a lot about who we are in Christ at this point. More about this next week in chapter 10, but we're going to move on to the passage. Point two, the danger of being a stumbling block. But, verse six, but this is a contrast. Instead of receiving Christ's disciples, what do you do? Instead of receiving Christ's disciples, you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. This is an opposite in the King James Version it says, shall offend. How are you receiving? How are receiving and causing to sin or offending contrasts? Now notice that the term continues. These little ones who believe in me. One such child who comes in my name is the little one who believes in me. Same theme. Toddlers in Christ, believers in Christ, disciples of Christ. Jesus continues the metaphor. Now notice as I wrestled with this. The opposite of receiving a disciple would be to reject a disciple. And that's why verse 10 becomes so important because the word despising is that word for rejection. And it has a lot of other things in there. Marvel will explain all that. So the idea is receive, don't despise. But in between that, there's a but that doesn't really fit with the receiving. And I wrestled with this. I believe it doesn't fit because what is happening here is worse than despising in verse 10. We are to receive, not despise. But in between that, you can do something worse than despising one of these little ones. You can be a stumbling block to one of these little ones. And that's worse. And it receives the strongest of condemnations. So despising, you'll get to verse 10, you'll see that it doesn't receive such a condemnation. But here, this whole passage is of warning because of the dire consequences of what it's talking about. And I believe Jesus brings this up because he is still dealing with how we treat one another in the kingdom. And before he deals with that, he's going to deal with people who seek to keep children out of the kingdom of heaven. People who want Christians to get out of the kingdom or keep people from even being in the kingdom. So we have to do a little word study. Now bear with me. I very rarely talk about the Greek language in church because it's really hard and people shut down. But it's really important to the text. Because the verb that is translated cause to sin, whoever causes to sin, is the word skandalizo in the Greek. And that means to cause to stumble morally. That's why it says to cause to sin. It's got a moral component. It's a moral stumbling. To cause to falter, to err, to fall away. So the idea here is to apostatize, to fall away spiritually, to stumble spiritually, but to st- and to stumble morally It appears to envisage fatal damage to the disciples' relationship with God. There's something that can be fatal to your relationship that would remove you from a relationship with God. That's the idea. This is a severe stumbling. This is not just, you know, I tripped going up the stairs and I'm fine. No, this is I fell off the three-story house when I was shingling and I broke my neck. Don't stumble there. That just brings to mind, I was up on my roof yesterday trying to clean... um, bird dung off uh, the siding and different things like that. And I was using water and oil, not oil, water and vinegar and soap and all that. And as I was doing that, I'm standing on this this slanted roof on my, uh, I got like three stories and I'm doing that. And the more I do it, the more water is on the roof. And the more I'm thinking, if I slip on this wet, these wet shingles and I go down, I forgot to tell Tracy I was up here. That's the first thing. So if she hears a big crash, she might not know it's me dying on the back porch. But, but other than that, I was thinking, if I stumble here, if I catch my foot on the hose or trip over something, this could be deadly. Now, if I stumbled going up the stairs onto the back porch, that little four-foot fall with my head might not be so deadly. There's, there's deadly stumbling, and this is the idea here. Now, the noun form for that same Greek word is scandalon, and it's translated temptations in verse 7. And then it's translated causes to sin in verses 8 and 9. So Jesus, speaking to us through Matthew's gospel here, is saying this is, there's a theme here starting in verse 6, going all the way through verse 9, and it uses the same word as verb and noun. Causes to sin, temptations to sin, temptations, temptation, causes to sin, causes to sin. So I believe, though, we should best translate this verb stumbling block or to stumble to cause to stumble or to be a stumbling block so here's how i would read these verses so look at verse six but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea woe to the world for stumbling blocks For it is necessary that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling blocks comes. Or stumbling block comes would be better, more proper in English. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Same Greek word, and I used a consistent translation to bring out the meaning, because I believe that the dire warnings of eternal fire and eternal hell are not just talking about causing someone to commit a sin. How many times have you encouraged Christians to sin? You will never be able to count it up, because it's far more than you could ever imagine. How many times have you enticed other Christians to do something they shouldn't do? Sin. I've done it. Hundreds of times, thousands of times, you have as well. If every time we tempt another believer to just simply sin, and this would cause hellfire, eternal fire, I don't see that. This is a deadly and detrimental action. And so most translators would disagree with my understanding of this text. So I'm definitely in the minority here, I'm not alone. But the idea here is so deadly, I want to bring it up because it's not just simply if you've got a sin problem, cut off your hand. If you've got a sin problem, poke out your eye. No, if you've got a sin problem, cut off your hand because if you don't, you'll go to hell. Wait a second, I thought I'm just sinning. No, this is a kind of sin that will damage you eternally. It's to uh, the idea of apostatizing, to walk away from the faith. And so... I believe this is talking about in verse six to not be the kind of person who keeps people from the kingdom of heaven. If you become a stumbling block, if you stumble, become a cause of keeping someone from the kingdom, you're in trouble. This stone, this stumbling block, is to put a stone in someone's way to stumble them, but to stumble them in such a way to hinder them from going where they're trying to go, to cause them to fall, in a sense of spiritually falling away. This means to stop a disciple from reaching their desired destination. And what's the destination earlier in the passage? The kingdom of heaven. This is a warning for people who will seek to keep people out of the kingdom of heaven. Don't get in the way of disciples who are seeking to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you do, there's a penalty. And that's point A. Stumbling a disciple incurs a great penalty. What's the penalty? Well, he doesn't get into specifics. He uses an illustration. He says it's a penalty that is far worse than having a great millstone hung around your neck and being drowned in the deepest part of the sea. So how does that sound? We're going to leave today. We're going to go over. Is, what's that lake over right over here called? Hopkins. Hopkins Lake. We're going to find the deepest part. We're going to get the biggest stone we're going to find. We're going to wrap a chain around your neck, tie a stone to it, and throw you the deepest part. Sound good? Signing up. No, I don't want that. That doesn't sound good to me. Well, that would be better than what's waiting for you if you do this. That's the point. Except it's in the deepest part of the sea, and it's a much bigger stone than you can imagine. It's a millstone. Look it up. It mirrors what he's going to say in a second about the same idea in verses eight and nine, eternal fire and the hell of fire. It would be better for you to be drowned physically, as it's mentioned here, than to spend eternity in the fire of hell. One is terrible. One is far more terrible than you can imagine. That's the point. So this stumbling brings this great penalty and i believe the great penalty ties to the next section this eternal penalty of the hell of fire now he continues he says woe woe to the world for stumbling blocks the world is cursed for having stumbling blocks this woe is a proclamation of judgment when god says woe that means you're in deep trouble it's a judgment of terror And the world is cursed with this woe because the world system is fundamentally and totally opposed to God and his ways in everything. This world is the enemy's kingdom. And the world is doing everything it can to maintain all of the citizens in it and not lose one of its kingdom citizens to the kingdom of heaven. There's two kingdoms they're fundamentally opposed at every level. And the world's kingdom is trying to keep all its citizens. And Christ came into this world to rescue people from the world's kingdom and take them into the kingdom of heaven on a rescue mission. And this world's kingdom is doing everything it can to put obstacle after obstacle, stumbling block after stumbling block, in your way so that if you're not a Christian, you never leave that kingdom. And this world will be cursed because of that. That's what Jesus said. Now notice that even though this world is cursed, it's necessary. For it is necessary that temptations come. Therefore, I believe this is saying stumbling blocks are inevitable in a fallen world. This is just the way the fallen world is. Go back to Genesis 3 and fast forward to today and you can see why it is this way. The entire system in this world is opposed to God at every turn and therefore stumbling blocks are the nature of things in a fallen world. In a sense, the world can't help itself because it's broken and it's wicked. It's under the dominion of Satan and it's going to have stumbling blocks all over. It's just necessary. It's just the way things are. Some might say it just is what it is. (laughs) So if that's just the way it is, then why this warning? Well, letter D. Yet individuals are cursed for being the source of stumbling for a disciple. So woe to the world because of the way the world is, but woe, the end of verse um, 7, to the one by whom the temptation comes. Temptations are a part of this world, but if, go back to verse 6, you're the person who is the temptation, you're the person who brings the temptation, you will be judged by this curse. Woe to the one who is the stumbling block. Eternal fire, the eternal judgment of hell, in a very real and extreme sense, waits for people who try to keep people out of the kingdom of heaven and succeed. The but is important, as as it always is in verse 7. It's a contrast. Although it is God's will for disciples to encounter stumbling blocks, and although it is the way things are in a fallen world, yet the individual who participates is held personally responsible. Once again, we see here human responsibility and God's sovereignty fitting together. No single individual is being forced against their will to participate in this evil business of stumbling or trying to stumble a disciple of Christ. No one is forced against their will, and they will be held responsible if they do this. And yet, this is the way God has ordained things to be right now. It is necessary. Judas Iscariot is a prime example of this very point. His betrayal of Christ was ordained by God, yet he incurred a great penalty for his betrayal, and he was warned about the eternal curse before he went through with it. Where do I find that? Matthew 26, 24. Notice the word woe here. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. What does that mean? Jesus Christ is going to be hung on a cross. He's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected, and there's nothing that's going to change what's been written. Fulfillment of prophecy, God is going to do what he planned to do. It's going to happen. But contrast, whoa, eternal deadly judgment to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Is the Son of Man going to be betrayed? Did God ordain for the Son of Man to be betrayed? Is Judas Iscariot going to be held responsible for betraying Christ? You say, how can that fit together? Well, you can wrestle with it all you want. It's true. And Jesus is saying this, and who's listening to him say it? The very betrayer is right there at the table. The very betrayer who's already talked to the Sanhedrin. I think, if I didn't look this up, I think he's already been paid his 30 pieces of silver. He knows he's going to do it. He's right there when Christ gives his warning. And what does Christ say? Notice the contrast. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Woe to that man. God ordained it, but don't you be the man to fulfill it. And Judas Iscariot hears him. Does he have any choice? absolutely does he choose to betray christ absolutely was it ordained by god absolutely you work it out i can't i can't help you unless you talk to me later we'll work it out but that's the truth and he's going to incur this great penalty it would be better for him to have never existed for how terrible it is currently right now in the lake of fire in hell for judas iscariot and the same thing is true here same principle applies now Why would Jesus teach this to disciples? Have you been thinking about that? Why would Jesus tell disciples, don't be a stumbling block to disciples? Why would Jesus tell followers of Jesus to not get in the way of people following Jesus? Now, I, see, I just wrestle and wrestle and wrestle. And sometimes I just wrestle too much and I have too many thoughts in my head. But I think, I think this is what I came up with. Jesus teaches this warning about stumbling disciples to disciples because there are wolves in sheep's clothing in almost every church and if they're not there now they will come later there are people who profess to know christ who are there not to help disciples but to hinder disciples not to encourage discipleship but to be a stumbling block to true disciples or to people who might become disciples they are in every church whether they know it or not i don't know whether they're intentional about it or not. But Satan in his work infiltrates and seeks to infiltrate the church. The church is not the kingdom, so separate those two things. But he seeks to keep people from the kingdom by infiltrating the church to stumble disciples. And if you're here today, and you are seeking to get in the way of people coming to Christ or bringing disciples of Christ back into the world's kingdom, there is a tremendous warning and a great judgment. Get out of the way. Get out of the church. You will spend eternity in hell, but it will be better if you don't participate in this activity. This is the warning for people following Christ. And who's there when he says this? At least Judas Iscariot, if not other false disciples. The warning is for people in the church. So hear it. You say, you don't have to give this warning to disciples because we would never do this. Go out and tell the world. No, Christ teaches us that there are people in the church who are going to try to keep people from being Christians or continuing as Christians. And there is a great and dire judgment. And so if this is you, this is a merciful warning to stop it and get out while you still can. Or by God's grace, repent and believe and be saved And become a true disciple of Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. Now, in case you think that the worst part is there, letter three or point three. Stumbling blocks are present within your own nature. Stumbling blocks are present within your nature, your own nature. Although the world and some of the inhabitants are trying to stumble you, although there might be people even in the church trying to stumble you, the greatest danger of stumbling is not without, but within the greatest danger for you not reaching the kingdom of heaven, but stumbling on the way is from within, not without. So what does Christ say? Christ says, remove anything from your own life that will keep you from eternal life. Remove anything in your own life that will keep you from eternal life. So this, is, this, is, this passage is just metaphor upon metaphor, illustration upon illustration. These body parts are metaphors for anything in your life, anything in your nature that is an obstacle A stumbling block on the way to the kingdom of heaven. So, whatever is in you, in your nature, in your life, in in your, your sphere, whatever's in you that might keep you from the kingdom of heaven, get rid of everything that would cause you to stumble. Cut it off, throw it away. He says it twice cut it off and throw it away. Cut it off. Get rid of anything that would cause you to stumble. Why? Because if you stumble, that's stumbling and falling away from eternal life. And where will you end up if you stumble and fall away from eternal life? Eternal death. Eternal fire, the, the hell of fire. So, so listen to the warning of Christ. So it's not you know, looking at your real hand and saying, Should I go home today and get out the sawzall and uh, take care of this problem? But if for some reason this real physical hand is going to keep you from eternal life, then yeah, it would be better to go home and get the sawzah than to go to eternal death. Now, that's not what Christ is saying. He's not saying cut off body parts. It's a metaphor, but the idea still stands in reality. Get rid of, do everything you can to get rid of anything that would keep you from heaven. That's it. I've asked numerous people, Numerous people over 20-some years of pastoral ministry, I forget I'm so old, I forget how many exactly. I've asked so many people this question, what keeps you from becoming a Christian? What keeps you from following Christ? What keeps you from repenting and believing? I've asked numerous people. Now, if you're not a believer here today, if you're not a Christian, do you know what that is? Do you know the answer to the question, what keeps you from becoming a Christian right here, right now? Now, I don't remember what every person has told me. I don't hardly remember what anybody said to me yesterday, uh, more or less all these people. But the overwhelming thought in my head is I've asked so many people that, I don't remember ever getting an answer to that question. The answer I get is this, I don't know. Now, there's two options of that. Either they know and they just don't want to tell me because they're embarrassed or they're ashamed or they don't want to face it. Or they truly don't know, but they still won't believe. I don't know the reality because I don't know their heart. But what that tells me is possibly there's millions of people around the world, hundreds of millions of people who will not be in heaven, but can't tell you why they've rejected Christ. They haven't given it even enough thought to say, I'm choosing eternal hell over eternal life, eternal death over eternal life, eternal fire over eternal blessing. And this is why they don't even know. So if you're going to reject Christ and eternal life, at least know why. And own it and know it and realize that you are trading one eternity for another eternity and it better be worth it. Is it? If not, whatever it is, cut it off and throw it away and trust in Christ. Right now. Eternal hell of fire. Christ spoke it. It's true. It's real. People will actually, metaphorically, physically, I don't know if it's a real fire or if that's just a metaphor for eternal pain and suffering. But it's one or both. It's not worth it. That guy's not worth it. That girl's not worth it. That job's not worth it. That habit's not worth it. Money, fame, all those things, they're not worth it. You will spend eternity in hell not regretting because you will never turn to Christ even in hell. You will never turn away. You will just own it forever. Nothing is worth it. Nothing is worth it. Hear the warning from the lips of Jesus Christ. Don't be a stumbling block and don't allow a stumbling block in your own life to keep you from heaven. The warning is dire. Now, I preached something that's not the normal preaching because the normal preaching is this. So I believe this is a great application. Let me end with this. The principle of radical amputation. If you go back to my sermon on Matthew 5, verses, I think, 29 through 30, that has the same almost exact wording, this is how I preached it. I've changed my understanding, so, but I'll give this as an application. The text is about eternal life versus eternal death. But as Christians, we can apply this principle to sanctification. The point is salvation, but let's apply the principle to Sanctification. There's no sinful habit that's worth indulging as a Christian. There's no sinful desire worth taming. There's no enticement to sin worth keeping around. There is no length. There's nothing we shouldn't be willing to to do. No length we shouldn't be willing to go to remove sinful temptations from our lives. We as Christians must grow to hate sin more and more and more and remove every opportunity, every temptation, every stumbling block to sin in our lives. Because sin is deadly and sin is dangerous. And if you are caught in sin, and if you get hardened by sin, Hebrews chapter three and four, the warning is that you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You say, but I thought Christians had eternal security. Pastor, Jake just led us in all these songs about he, that we'll never be lost. We're gonna be saved forever. God's grace is amazing. Our hope is Christ in life and death. Amen. But yet every warning in the scripture is warning to believers that the perseverance of the saints is necessary for the preservation of the saints. And that if you don't persevere in righteousness and walk with God, you won't be um, preserved by God. And so the warnings are there to say, don't get caught in sin because you might think you're saved, but you're not saved and you will fall away. True Christians can never fall away, but the Bible never leaves us without warning. So there's a sinful habit in your life. There's something you're giving yourself over to. Cut it off and throw it away. Tear it out and throw it away. There's nothing in your life to sinfully indulge in as a Christian that's worth it. And if you think you can just count on your salvation to hold you fast while you turn and walk away from God with deadly sinful habits, then listen to the warning of this passage. And here's the ending. Here's the conclusion. It's not on your notes, but you can write one in because... I gave you some bonus. (laughs) That's not a fun bonus. Avoid eternal hellfire by not allowing anything to keep you from eternal life and not keeping anyone else from eternal life. Avoid eternal hellfire. Avoid greater punishment in hell by not doing this, not being this, not having this. This is a deadly and dangerous passage that takes Hell deadly seriously. And I, I wish I could impress it upon you even more, the warning in scripture for you. May you hear it. May you listen to it. May God work in us. Father, help us. Remove these stumbling blocks. If there's someone in our church who's a stumbling block to others, remove them. Get these temptations, these these things that would cause anyone to apostatize and to turn away, remove them from from their life, remove them from their own nature, remove them in every way. May we pursue with all our might the kingdom of heaven. Avoid eternal fire and eternal hell by trusting in you. May these warnings sink in May they bear eternal fruit for your glory. May souls be saved as they they turn away and turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.